0: Welcome to the third week of Global Missions Month. As you know, because you've heard me say it now twice, Missions Month is a big deal. Why? Because international church planning and evangelism are part of our DNA. We exist as a church to magnify the character and work of God and to shout about the worth of God to our neighbors and the nations. That's why we're here. And since the birth of Redeemer, we've been sending out families all over the world. Right now, this very moment, we have families in East Asia, and Central Asia. We've sent a missionary to Central Africa and just received one back from the UK. We're in the business of missions as a church, corporately. But that work doesn't end there. Yes, we have a duty to support and serve and send corporately, but you, yes, you, you in the shirt, you with the eyes, you have a duty to support and serve and send, and yes, maybe to go. You, individually. So let me repeat what I've now said twice. You were not saved into the family of God merely to patiently await your redemption, You were not a beneficiary of the great trade. You did not wear the righteousness of Christ in order to wait it out until the dawn of a new kingdom. When God rescues sons and daughters, his embrace comes with a commission. You have been commissioned as an ambassador. We, the reconciled, are ministers of reconciliation. You can't have one without the other. We have been given the message of reconciliation and have been sent out to broadcast that message to the nations. So we take time, a month, every year, to talk about missions because we want you to understand the correlation between loving God and telling everyone about it. This is how the work of the Spirit, that work that began with your rescue and that ends at the great wedding feast, this is how the work of the Spirit overflows in your heart. So we spent some time last week reflecting on the great rescue of the nations. We discussed God's invitation to the poor, the brokenhearted, the weak, the beat up and broken down, the threadbare rebel nations to dine at his great kingdom feasts. When God issues invitations to the great forever feast, he does not do so on the merit of social status or net worth, or skill set, or accomplishments. God does not send out invitations to recognize the greatness of others. Invitations to the great kingdom feast will be issued to highlight the character of our great benevolent king. And so the great king issues invitations to dine at his table. And as he drafts these invitations, he hands them in armfuls to servants... That's you. You have been handed an armful of invitations compelling the nations to come and eat at the great kingdom feast. Armfuls of invitations in gilded letters reading, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. And delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. So that's the commission. We're carrying invitations to the great kingdom feast. And we've been told to take these invitations to the highways and the hedges, to the poor and the broken and the crippled. We've been asked to whisper in the ear of the prodigal son, remember your kind father, his servants are warm and well fed. Now, it's one thing to know what to do, and it's an entirely different thing to know how to do it. And that's what today is about. Today we're going to blow through a handful of passages that tell us how to issue these invitations. The New Testament is in many ways an artifact of the missionary movement. It is in many ways evidence of the work of God through missionaries. And here's what I mean. The Gospels were each written to different people groups. Think about that for a minute. One of the reasons we have four Gospels and not just one is because these words were written to reach people of different cultures, with different backgrounds and different values. The Gospels themselves are evidence of the missionary movement that reaches out to Central Asia, to Rome, to the Jewish diaspora. And as you continue to flip through the New Testament, what do you see? What do you see in Acts? You see a record of the good news of Christ's work spreading from Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth. You see the record of the Spirit's work through missionaries. And as you continue to flip pages, you see letter after letter after letter to international church plants. You see missionaries writing letters to young churches answering questions and exhorting young believers to trust in Jesus, to hold on, to be faithful in the midst of a wicked and broken world. That's the New Testament. Every page is a result of and fundamentally connected to the missionary movement that started in Jerusalem and that continues to this day. So we're going to take a bit of time and explore the New Testament. And As we do, we're looking for the answer to one question. How do we serve and support and send missionaries? How do we do this? Well, we've seen that it's central and that it's a part of who we are as believers And we've seen the commission to send and serve and support so that the poor and broken may be invited to sit at the great table. But how do we do it? That's what we're looking for. We're going to ask the Spirit to illuminate the scriptures and to teach us how to send the invitation. And then we're going to get right to it. All right, so pray with me and ask the Spirit to illuminate the scriptures. Father, thank you. Thank you for your kind work to send your Son who rescued us and to send your Spirit who fills us. By your Spirit and by your Spirit's power, you open our eyes and soften our hearts and allow us to understand the meaning of the Scriptures. And please do so now. Thank you. In Christ's name, amen. All right, I need everybody to turn to Acts 1. Hold your Bible when you're there. Awesome. Look down at verse 6. Acts 1-6. So when they, the disciples, had come together, they asked him, Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, I wanted to start here for two reasons. First, I want you to see that this is the beginning of the missions movement. Jesus looks at his friends, his followers, now his brothers, and he says to them, wait. Yes, the kingdom is coming. When? That's the Father's business, not yours. What is your business? Your business is to wait for the Spirit and then become my witnesses. Where? First Jerusalem, then all Judea and Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. That's your business. The kingdom will come when the Father says the time is right. But your business is to be my witnesses. That's, that's the first reason we looked at this text, because it starts with a commission in no uncertain terms, with not a hint of ambiguity from Jesus himself. Go tell everybody about me. But the second reason I wanted to begin with this text is to highlight the very real and very organic connection between the missions movement and a building hope in the return of Christ and the coming kingdom. Listen to the question again. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That is not a dumb question. In fact, that question has everything to do with the faith of the disciples. This Jesus has just risen from the dead. This Jesus has just declared victory over death. And to over Satan. So what's stopping this Jesus from declaring all things new? This question is beautiful. And arises from the heart of a hopeful citizen of the new kingdom. But Jesus looks in the eyes of the disciples and he says, That's not for you to know. You need to focus on the commission. Now, maybe you're thinking, and I did. Maybe you're thinking that Jesus' answer is coming out of left field. Like, what does missions have to do with the dawn of the new kingdom? And why would Jesus respond this way? Well, I don't want you to turn there, but I'm going to read a short passage from Matthew 24. And Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Sound familiar? And Jesus answered them, And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will, will arise and lead many astray. And because, of, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And listen to this. And this gospel... Of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So, before Jesus was crucified, these same guys ask this same question. And Jesus tells them, look, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. And here, in Acts, after Christ has secured the redemption of his people, has conquered the grave, and is about to sit at the right hand of the Father, these guys ask one more time, Jesus, is it now? Are you coming back to secure the kingdom now? And Jesus looks at his brothers right square in the eye, And he says, get to work. Why? Because the end comes after the nations have heard. You want the kingdom? Go preach the gospels to the end of the earth. Preach the gospel. I had a buddy who used to preach on this passage all the time. And he used to ask, do you know why the apostles preached so fervently? Without hesitation, even though it meant suffering and persecution and death. Do you know why they kept preaching till the end? Because they missed Jesus. They missed him and they wanted him to come back. That's why they kept going. So that's part of the soul of missions. As we send brothers and sisters to the ends of the earth, we do so hoping that this is the day, that this is the day when the last nation will hear and Jesus will come back. We go and we send and we support and we serve because we miss him. Keep going. Turn to Acts 13. Verse 1. Everybody there? Okay. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Send apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. Okay, so two quick things to notice in this passage. First, the work of sending missionaries is first and foremost a work of the Holy Spirit. Look at the passage again. What what happens? They were worshiping and fasting, and the Holy Spirit said... So we're... We're looking at a local church. This is a local church in a city called Antioch. And this local church was doing what local churches should always be doing. They were worshiping the Lord, and they were praying and fasting for his work. And the Holy Spirit spoke to that church. That's the second thing you need to notice. Even though this passage explicitly notes... That the sending of Paul and Barnabas is a work orchestrated by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit said, being sent out by the Holy Spirit. The local church did the sending. Look at it one more time. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So the Spirit moved and the local church saw that movement recognized that mo- movement, and wasted no time in acting obediently. The local church always sends missionaries, and she always sends missionaries by the prompting of the Holy Spirit. So what does this mean for us, the local church, Redeemer, in white settlement, in Texas, in the United States? At the very least, it means two things. First, first, we need to be worshiping God and praying and fasting for the work of the Lord. That's how Paul's missionary journey began. A local church worshiping and praying and fasting. So, so if we're not, if we're not spending real time worshiping together, in prayer, in prayer together, fasting together, to see the work of God unfold, we're not going to send missionaries Without this foundation, we should not send missionaries. Second, this means that missionaries should only be sent when the local church recognizes the movement of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit prompts the local church. I want you to notice this and think about it a moment. Who's prompted by the Holy Spirit? It's the church. It's all of them. I want to address now what may be a misunderstanding of, in local churches in our context. Okay. We have been, we've begun to operate, you know, in, in America at least, from what I've seen, we begin to operate as if the Holy Spirit speaks privately to the future pastor or future missionary to call him to, or her, to God's good work. And that prompting alone is the only prerequisite for ministry. We have been been behaving as if the Spirit works exclusively in the lone believer's heart outside of the local church. That's why we ask young people, when did you receive this call to ministry? Not when did your local church affirm the Spirit's calling on your life? That's a problem, not only because young, excited believers aren't always mature enough to recognize the work of the Spirit. That's a problem because believers should not begin working towards the work of ministry without the support of the local church, who will serve them and encourage them and rebuke them when necessary. Being called to missions doesn't make you a missionary. It makes you a Christian. We need, to, we need the church to discern how and when we will serve in missionary contexts. The local church sends out missionaries when they corporately recognize the work of the Spirit. That work of the Spirit may privately prompt the believer. But that prompting should always be confirmed by the local church. Make sense? Okay, we've got to keep going. Turn to Acts 14, verse 21. When they, we're talking about Paul and his his crew, when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in their faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed." Then they passed through Pisidia and went to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Persia, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. So we jumped forward to a point where Paul is vibrantly proclaiming the gospel to Gentiles everywhere. He has done the work of evangelism, discipleship, and church planting all over the place. And he begins to make a return journey. Stopping at all of these young churches and encouraging young believers. He reminds them to suffer well because the kingdom of God is coming. And as soon as elders are established in every church, he steps away and continues his return journey. So I want you to notice what happens next. And when they had spoken the word in Persia, they went down to Italia. And from there, they sailed where? To Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained there no little time with the disciples. Look, this is well after Paul and Barnabas were sent away. The church had prayed and had fasted and had laid hands and had sent years ago. Yet we don't see, even though... Even though this happened years ago, we don't see even a hint of disconnection. The local church at Antioch has remained a stakeholder in the missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. They have remained invested. And how do we know? What happens when he arrives? The local church gathers to hear stories and to worship the God who saves. This isn't a revival weekend. They didn't just pat Paul and Barnabas on the back. Hey, thanks for the update. We'll see you in a few more years. No. They stayed a while. Now, Luke doesn't tell us exactly how long, but another translation of this phrase is a long time. So they stayed a long time. What does this mean for Redeemer? the sending local church. It means that we take advantage of of the opportunity we have when our missionary families are back in town. It means that we set aside time. We cancel usual activities and we set aside time for them to tell us about the good work of God among the nations. And when we hear these stories, we worship together with our old friends. The work of God among the nations will compel us to trust and love and worship God more. That's the rich reward of sending churches. Yes, we lose some of our best friends, sometimes for years and sometimes until the New Kingdom. But when we hear their report, we see in high definition the faithfulness of God. And we look forward to the wedding feast of the Lamb, a table populated by men and women of every tribe and tongue and nation, When we hear the reports of missionaries, we celebrate God's good rescue and we look forward to God's good kingdom. So it's a privilege. One more thing. I think this passage is suggesting, implicitly, that we ought to take care of our missionaries when they're back in town. I think it means they shouldn't have needs unmet when they're among us. So let's think hard as a church And individually about how to care for our sent brothers and sisters when they visit. All right, keep coming, keep going. Let's do Romans 16, verse 1. This is Paul writing I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna butcher it that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They are all well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my, bro- my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my, I'm, and my beloved Status. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsmen Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryph- Tryphania and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet syncretus, Phlegion, Hermes, Patravus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus. Julia, nearest his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Okay, so that's a long passage, and by the way, miserable to read out loud. But I think it's important, because I think it, it communicates an important dynamic. And we should look at it, and take note of it, and respond accordingly. So here it is. The life of the missionary is nourished by the friendship and contact and visits of old friends and brothers and sisters in the faith. I want to repeat that because I think it's important. The life of the missionary is nourished by the friendship and contact and visits of old friends who are brothers and sisters in the faith. The burden-carrying, hope-filled love of brothers and sisters is a beacon of the gospel and a reminder of why they left in the first place. Such love is essential to the work of missions and we must broadcast that love in every way possible. The work of missions is often lonely. I mean, we've had friends who spent years as the only only English speakers within 50 miles. Every day, learning a strange language, eating strange food, miles away from anything familiar. That's isolation. That's tough and painful and scary isolation. And without the regular encouragement of old friends and loving brothers and sisters in Christ, that isolation can be terrifying. And when that isolation becomes palpable, how does the missionary remember the bright light of the gospel? The burden-carrying, hope-filled love of dear brothers and sisters. Paul ends his letter like this often. Tell Mary I said hello. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, who risked their necks for me. Greet my beloved Ampliatus. Welcome my friend Phoebe. She served me and many others well. I'm vouching for her. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who's been a mother to me. That kind of letter isn't possible unless brothers and sisters in local churches are praying for and supporting and writing letters to and visiting Paul as frequently as possible. The social network that undergirds Paul's missionary journeys is a picture of our responsibility to our missionaries. We must write them. We must call them. We must Skype them. We must visit them. As we send our dear brothers and sisters into the dark, we should not send them without the warm lantern of our thoughts and prayers as brothers and sisters in Christ. We're running out of time, but turn to Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, verse 21. Okay, so we're reading this passage for one simple reason. Let's read it together. So that you also may know how I am doing, how I am, and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. So the local church should send brothers and sisters as emissaries to missionaries while they're on the field. That isn't possible in every situation, but it is possible in most. While Paul was out doing the work of a missionary, he was receiving visitors from local churches. These visitors were visible pictures of the concern and love of a sending church. And these visitors were commissioned by the local church to bring back a report. The reports of emissaries fuel prayer, fuel giving, fuel care on every level. In this case, Paul makes a significant sacrifice. He's the one in this case sending the beloved brother so that the local church may know how he's doing, what burdens he's carrying, what needs he's encountered, what successes he's enjoyed. This update was so important for missionary Paul that he sent a dear brother away to give it. And throughout the New Testament, Paul is either sending brothers... To give report or receiving brothers to, to get a report as emissaries. So, so, what does this mean for Redeemer? I think it means that we need to send teams and we need to make it a priority. We're already doing this in some love. But the sending a missionary should be an expense that we prioritize in our personal giving. This may mean that you go to visit on your own dollar. Or this may mean that you give money to another so that he or she can go. In every case, we need to feel some obligation to visit our missionaries and to receive that report and to issue that report to the local church to fuel care, to fuel giving, and to fuel prayer, and to fuel worship. Emissaries visibly represent our care for missionaries. And they can bring a report that's fuller and deeper than any email or video recording. Okay, last passage. Turn to Philippians 4, verse 10. Next book. I rejoice. This is Paul speaking. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of need... a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Wow, it's beautiful. I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In every and any circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. That's amazing. This is Paul. Great missionary apostle. Beaten and stoned Paul who always got up again to preach the gospel to a broken world. And the gift, the gift of a local church prompted Paul to rejoice in the Lord greatly. Because this local church took advantage of an opportunity to visualize their care for him. It was kind of you to share in my trouble. To use the words of C.S. Lewis, their care for him. Their gift to him. It was a real ingredient in the joy of Brother Paul the missionary. A real ingredient in the worship of the great God through the mouth of missionary Paul. Just just a just a care gift. We don't know what's in it, money and other stuff, probably. Certainly, it wasn't overwhelming. This was a small, poor church. To give you a bit of context, the, books, the book of Philippians was written in part as a response to a gift. This local church sent Paul money. Nothing profound or staggering. They just raised money and sent it. And Paul writes Though I've learned to be content in every situation, it was kind of you to share in my troubles. I am rejoicing in the Lord greatly. I think this is a great passage to end on because it shines the gratitude of a missionary who is currently feeling the burden-carrying love of a local church and who is praising God because of it. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, that fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Does that not stir you? Paul is a missionary hero. And his affection for Christ and love for God are stirred because of a care package. How? He's rejoicing in the Lord greatly. Why? Nothing miraculous, nothing astounding. The hope and faith of Paul are bolstered by brothers and sisters in a local church putting together a care package and sending a brother to deliver it. Do you know why this is exciting? Because we could do that. Easy. Easy peasy. Right? We can do that for everybody we send out. Our responsibility to our missionaries, the burden-carrying, hope-driven responsibility that we have to those who we send to the nations is not anything profound Well, groundbreaking. It's not anything that requires a high theological background. It's not anything that requires a whole lot of study and effort. It's easy. Send them a care package. It will stir their faith. And it will remind them of Christ's faithfulness and love. And that will fuel them to go out and continue to proclaim the gospel. Figure out what they need and send it. Easy. Carry one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What does this passage mean for us, for a Redeemer? As a local church that sins, nothing crazy, nothing profound, nothing miraculous. It means meeting their needs as much as we can, sharing in their trouble as much as we can, giving some of your money or your stuff to help them out when they need it. Why? Not because God's not capable of providing what they need, but because sometimes God chooses to use you as a vehicle to broadcast grace and mercy and love. We do it to stir up their affection for Christ. That's why we do it. God owns all the cattle on all the hills. He could just. I was on mission once in Micronesia. One day we just walked outside, there's a big tuna on the ground. Dinner. I don't know who did it. Probably it was somebody in the church there. But God could do that every morning if he wanted to. But he chooses to use us as vehicles and vessels to broadcast his kindness and love. We send care packages and people because we want our missionaries to rejoice in the work of the Lord. That's why we do it. So when you see in the back a big crate in the entrance, full of bad snack food from America and diapers and baby clothes. I want you to remember this passage. That crate is going to a missionary. And when they get it, they will remember our concern for them. And they'll thank God for the kindness of brothers and sisters who care. So there you are. You have been given a commission. And these passages, I think, help us understand how we can fulfill that commission. So go and send and support and serve. Go visit. Go call or write or email or Skype. Put together a care package and hand deliver it. So before you leave today, go visit the Fellowship Hall. Uh, on, On Wednesday, if you weren't able to make it It's a really cool thing we do every September. um, Hold the Rope Fellowship, where we basically put up booths to explain the context and the people that are out abroad. Broadcasting the beauty of, of God to the nations. We remember our missionaries there. And our Barnabas teams remind the church about each missionary family and how we can serve them. Those booths are still up. Okay? So before you leave today, please go and just look at them. Just look at them. They're just going to answer all the questions how for you. How to serve. How to care for them. How to support them. How to pray for them. It's just right out there. I mean, like, almost on your way to your car if you're there, or a little bit out of the way of your car if you're there. No big deal. Our commission isn't complex, and it's not theoretical. Those booths will introduce you to the very real missionary families, who we've been tasked with supporting and their very real needs. They will teach you how to pray for them and how to connect with them. They'll teach you to put hands and feet on your concern for them. Take note of the needs and meet them. That's your homework. See needs and meet them and watch the work of God among the nations unfold with vibrancy. Let's pray.